everyone. Welcome back to the Pot on Point podcast, a podcast about sports, business, and the business of sports. This is Mike McPhee coming to you from Denver, Colorado, one of the few cities in the United States with six pro sports teams. Is that is that a big number? It's a big <laughs> number. How many okay. you got in Seattle there, bro? I don't know. <laughs> so you don't even know. See? It's just it's just one of those things that like nobody nobody cares. Yeah, about four, maybe three. Hello, everybody. This is Vladimir Bosana. It's coming in from Seattle, Washington, <laughs> the home of the famous and really disgusting gum wall. <laughs> How many pieces of gum on that wall? Let's count these things. More than in six. In this week's show, more than six. In this week's show, we've got Jesse Washington, the co-author of the autobiography of former Georgetown basketball coach John Thompson. I Came as a Shadow is the name of that book, and he just recently published it at the end of last year. We're going to talk with Jesse about his book some very interesting and enlightening points the coach made about student-athletes making money, and peek into one of the stories Jesse mentions in this book in which Vlad was an active participant. It's going to be great. But first, we have a few thoughts on a number of recent news items about sports to help us kick off the show. So get your game face on, grab your number one foam finger, plop on the couch, and put those feet up as we wrap up our pregame. It's going to be a good one, Vlad. So, uh, Mike, uh, 23 has kind of become like a magical number in basketball. I don't know if you've noticed, but, you know, LeBron, mm -hmm. Michael Jordan, Anthony Davis had it when he was with the Pelicans, mm -hmm. Draymond Green, Meta, what, World what, Peace. What diverse list there. <laughs> Goodness. Diverse list. Do you have a favorite 23 in this group or another group? Well, of that group, MJ, definitely. Michael, for sure. Yeah. Uh, the original, I don't think. You know, growing up, Vlad, nobody wore 23. You know, that just wasn't a number because yes. nobody before yeah. Jordan was really rocking the 23, were they? Like, so our growing up years, they were, was there a 23? There were a few. There were a few. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I actually did some research while I was making this <laughs> list up. And of course. There is a website that lists everybody that, that wore okay. number 23. Well, nobody stands out. There are some... There's some names that you kind of recognize, you know, they're like, oh yeah, that person too, but uh, no one of right. note, I think. I think he certainly made that. My number. growing up years might, might have same. It was Bird, Magic, and Barkley. So you had 32, 33, 34. Those were big. And then number, number six, yep. Dr. J was a big number. The kids wanted to wear that, you know, but you know, yep. back then you didn't get new uniforms each year. So it's kind of like, what was in the box? <laughs> That's right. So. That's right. Do you remember Robert Parrish, the double zero? Not the zero, yeah, but the double zero? Nobody wanted to rock that as a kid. That wasn't <laughs> that was cool. Interesting. Now, how about the single zero? <laughs> I like the single zero. That's a nice yeah, one. I think that was Orlando Woolridge way back in the day. There's a name. Orlando Woolridge. Oh, there is He wore a the name. single zero. Yes, he was, he was there when Michael the Jordan Bulls. joined uh, yeah. the Bulls, and he was Single awesome, zero. Man. He was the enforcer, wasn't he? Kind of like a yeah. Xavier McDaniel, strong guy. Yes. Anthony Mason, yep. strong guy. Yep. Yeah, oh, we're just rocking those old names, old time basketball. That is a that is a blast from the past. Hey, speaking of blast from the past, so how about these old dudes rocking uh, rocking the sports again? <laughs> Tom Brady making the Super Bowl again. Thoughts? Are you blast surprised? Blast from the past, man. He ain't gone anywhere. I mean, I just they keep saying he's forty three. I'm like, that's a young guy. That that guy's young. He's what five six years younger than us. I know. So, geez, he's unbelievable. But isn't but isn't that kind of crazy? I don't know in football, Mike. You you may know this better. Have there been others? Uh, how old was uh, the 49ers uh, running back? back. 49ers oh, running back. What's his name? Maybe he wasn't a running back. Maybe um, 
I'm drawing a blank now, but but he was pretty old. I feel like when he retired, uh, Jerry oh, Rice. Re- Jerry Rice. Receiver. How old Jerry Rice? Yeah, late thirties. Late thirties when he retired. But but late there's 30s. there's precedent for. I saw this about Tom Brady. The precedent at the like almost like the non-contact football position. So some kickers have gotten old. There's some old guys in their forties. There's been some quarterbacks. Yes. Um, and maybe a punter. Yes. Like those things. Because like Tom Brady, like who else? Brett Favre was in his forties. Warren Moon went to his 40s. Then the old school, they said on TV, George Blanda went to like 49 or something like that. So I don't know. Interesting. That, like, yeah. Definitely roles that are not not very, they don't get hit a lot, essentially, right? Is that is that One, is I think there's a contact bone and then, and then speed because you, you lose that speed, right? And Tom yeah. Brady's never been yeah, accused of having sure. speed even back when he was 22. So... Listen, good on him. I mean, to make oh, the incredible. Super Bowl again in his 40s. I mean, this is this is incredible. I think a lot of people wrote him off at the He's beginning incredible. of the season. Um, you know, leaving the leaving the Patriots. Small kind of uh, call out here, but uh, you know, I used to live in San Mateo. He's a he's a San Mateo boy. To Sarah he High is. School there, uh, and then Michigan, and then Patriots. He's so, a guy from um, your hood. He's he's from your hood. Yeah, guy from my that? hood. Guy from so you got hood. guy from old yeah. country. You got like Jokic is like your guy from old country. And then, and now you got guys that's from right. the hood. Now you're just rocking it out. That's right. That's impressive. That's right. That's right. Anyway, uh, interesting. Interesting. I wanted to sort of just call that out. So a couple of a uh, couple of stories we have to address here, Mike. Um, one, one I thought was very interesting that I saw recently about brands have left the Super Bowl advertising game. So there was a couple of articles uh, over the last week or so about Coke, Pepsi, and Budweiser deciding not to advertise during uh, this year's Super Bowl. It looks like Anheuser-Busch is not entirely pulling out. Sounds like they are going to spend about four minutes of advertising on some of their lighter brands like Bud Light and Bud Light Seltzer Lemonade and Michelob Ultra and that kind of thing. But And same with PepsiCo. Uh, Sounds like Pepsi is not going to advertise Pepsi, but they will advertise Mountain Dew and some other products. But Coke is out. Audi is out. Avocados from Mexico. They're in the same out. group. <laughs> They're in that same group. Avocados <laughs> from Mexico. Okay. Well, my, my my point is my point is this is interesting. I mean, companies are leaving the Super Bowl, and now there are some new ones coming in. But but what do you what do you think about this? I mean, do you think it's it's a value proposition thing, or do you think there's something Business else going side, on? Here? I would say it's probably always been tough to measure the impact of shipping a commercial during the game. Sure, sure, you want to be in the yeah. conversation that next week when they diagnose the ads, but then does that really drive sales? I bet they're having a hard time proving that out. That's my business lens. I'll go cynical. I'll go cynical. I think so. If if you're not going to send your executives to the game because executives can't go to this year's game, are they as interested in approving the the ads to be uh, to be <laughs> right. shown during the game? Right, because right. that four or five million probably right. gets you some seats or some suites or something like that. The parties. Oh. Yeah, I, that's all out this better, year. That, better, that's not right? even cynical. I think that's just real. Yeah. That's all out. I think when you look at the money, so uh, my understanding, it's about five and a half million bucks for a thirty-second ad on, yeah. on CBS. I just don't think that uh, companies are finding value at it anymore. I think, I think this is going to be interesting for the NFL overall, but. I don't think TV, quite honestly, is the medium it used to be five, no ten years ago. I think people are not watching TV no the way they used to. You and I know this. I mean, people are multi-screening, even when they're watching TV. You know, I mean, I'm sometimes guilty of that. My kids are also. 
and for a fraction of the cost, essentially, Mike, you can go do some in interesting, innovative stuff on TikTok and Instagram. And I bet you there's going to be money spent on those platforms during the Super Bowl where you're going to start seeing sort of things pop up that day from these brands that are maybe legacy brands uh, for, for this uh for I think that's medium. right. I think it's a solid bet to make. I, th I mean, heck, we're multi-screening multi right now as we're kind of doing yep. this gig here. So yeah, absolutely. Everybody's refractionalizing yeah. our attention spans. And the big box, right. whatever we call these things now, television sets, big boxes, they're just one of many things and often the last thing you go to, right? You, you, your that's phone, right. your tablet, whatever else. I, I think it's a new day. And we're, we're going to see new models emerge. I think also, I think also, which is very important, brands have options. I think maybe back in the day, you know, the Super Bowl was like this one big sort of moment, right? When everybody was sort of glued to the TV. Brands now have options that they have. They can talk to consumers through so many channels now, right? So through many channels. Twitter, through TikTok, right? Um, and I wonder, I wonder if this is uh, if this is a bit of a warning for the NFL. I think if this is going to maybe impact them indirectly because if the tv stations right if the if the networks are not making the money on revenue they won't be able to afford the big broadcasting contracts that they were maybe paying in the past and i wonder if this is going to impact that magical 25 billion dollar figure that the nfl is chasing over the next five You're years You're speculating here vlad this maybe is canary in the coal mine that maybe those sunday I, afternoons you know, won't be as lucrative anymore i i don't think this is a pause year i think this is a huh. reset year I think this is a year where all of these brands are rethinking, is this the right way for us to spend money going mm. forward? And I bet a lot of them are going to say, let's do some new so stuff. So then what's another translation layer to that? Do the media deals that come out next year, are they shorter? Did, would you speculate that they'll be shorter, which allows for less risk in the out years? I think that's probably, there's going to be some kind of a balance there, some kind of a friction where I think the networks are going to want a shorter deal with maybe some more guarantees and yes. stuff like that. And the league wants the, long, right? You know, the, 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 the league is going to want yep. the opposite, right? So it'll be a friction there. Next year might be too quick to sort of judge. I wouldn't be surprised if CBS and all these other guys are basically saying, well, look, okay. it was an off year, right? It was just a bad year and they're going to use COVID as an excuse yeah. for everything. But I think there's more brewing, you know, below the surface here than than just the COVID year. Uh, that's my okay. Kind of maybe we'll mark this in time. We'll yeah, maybe we'll mark we'll this see. in time. Good one. Yeah, yeah. All right, Vlad. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to second one here. Let's kick around before we get to the meat of this week's show. Let's talk a little bit about what's happening with college sports. We talk college sports a lot, but let's talk about it like the athletic directors. We've talked college coaches, but let's throw onto the the heap athletic directors and commissioners into that heap. Can we talk about that. I, I thought you were going to say, let's throw under the bus. Well, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's an outcome. Maybe that's our outcome here. But let's throw on the heat. Yeah. There's some movement. There's some movement. Um, you know, Tennessee named the new athletic director in the last week or two. This gentleman, Danny yes. White, yep. he's going to receive yep. nearly $2 million a year in his role. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a little bit of swirl around Mr. White from my perspective because this man left University of Central Florida a couple weeks back. Uh, signs this deal. He's now the highest paid athletic director in the SEC. Maybe that's what they had to to pay out to get somebody to clean up. They've got all kinds of messes happening there at Tennessee, right? So maybe that's what they got to do. Yeah. But then just oddly enough, just yesterday, he signs as his new football coach, his old buddy from Central Florida as well, Josh Heupel. So it, it was right. two peas in a pod. You don't get one without the other, right? Is that the way to look at this? I think. 
I th- I think so. I mean, as you and I have been, you know, talking about this and looking at college sports and how this, you know, quote unquote game is being played, right? I mean, I think, you know, the coaches and the ADs and the presidents of these universities all have to sort of be lockstep, right? I yes. mean, they have to be in, you know, in cahoots, perhaps, maybe is a wrong word to say, but they, they have to be aligned in terms of like what the school is trying to do and how they're trying to do it. And I think hiring the AD and then having the AD kind of bring in a coach is probably something that I'm not surprised that this is happening. I am a little bit surprised that, you know, ADs are now making 2 million bucks a year, which is kind of incredible to me, but I, Jesus, right? I mean, it just shows you how much money's spent out there, right? And apparently, uh, you know, uh, the sky's the limit. I mean, this is kind of incredible. It's a big number, but I was trying to look at this, you know, with our business lens, it's like these effectively, like a Tennessee's a $100 million entity, you know, and and if you think of the business, does the CEO of a $100 million company, private or public, are they a $2 million a year person? Might be, all in. They might be, and they might Might have some stock and bonuses and such. So one thing that that I think needs to be put onto the table, if this is true, and this is definitely now true, this is the way the, the pay is going to be in this space, I think I'd like to see more performance metrics. like to see how these guys are measured for their steering yeah. these orgs, right? Because you're stealing a $100 million entity. Are you, are you what, what are your metrics? What comes out of this? Do you have big payouts to other schools? Yes. Is that one of the metrics? Because you're not profitable. What is the right? metrics? Right. It's not, it's not the share right. price, right, of your, of your stocks, right? It's, it's not your revenue. Well, maybe it is the revenue is tied to it somehow, right? Got to be wins. Got to be wins. Right? Staff turnover. On, Staff on turnover. Some level. Staff turnover. Maybe, maybe not. That one I can see. When they bring in a new coach, they probably let them clean house anyway and do their own thing. I don't think they care about that as, as much as perhaps financial results, which translate directly from wins yeah, and incredible. stadium attendance and all that other stuff. So maybe stuff, attendance. Right? Maybe attendance is another one that goes in the heap of yeah. ways to measure yeah. these guys. Yep. So I just, it's just one more signal that the money is so outsized. But then another thing we've seen in this last two weeks is our guy, Larry Scott, commissioner of the PAC-12, Right. Oh, Another, yes. So, so we talked athletic <laughs> yes. directors. Let's go up one more level. Yeah. Uh, if you look at it from yeah. a you know ten thousand foot view, as athletic directors go to up to commissioners, they're, they're got to be working together yeah. well too. Larry's well known for expanding the conference. So Pac twelve under his watch went from the Pac ten to the Pac twelve. Okay. Right. Added <laughs> right. in. He was unsuccessful. Tried to add in Texas and uh, I want to say Texas and Nebraska, and he lost out on them. But he added in Colorado and Utah. And then he helped them form the yep. Pac-12 network. So those were big wins early in his tenure, right? Yeah. But then yeah. the Pac-12 network ended up being one of the lower profile networks because the way they structured it, he was first guy out of the gate, but the next ones that came along all structured their deals to throw off more money to the teams. So it's kind of like, he's kind of yeah. got like the short straw now. And then, geez, Vlad, in 2021, some of the pandemic things, this guy- his teams accelerated their bonuses so that they get paid out early in the summer. And then several weeks later, furloughed a good portion of the staff. Like, what's going on there? Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, I, you know, I think it's, look, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a money <sighs> grab, right? They all knew revenue was going to be down. So let's kind of do all this, right? Sounds like they're getting rid of him. So he is leaving before his contract expires, which is interesting because I think they're up for, um, 
network it renegotiation is. next year, That's if right. I'm not mistaken. And and looks like they're kind of driving. They want to essentially drive this bus without him is what it sounds like, right? But yeah, I mean, you know, I get it. It's a business. You made a point earlier, you know, is this what a what a CEO of a $100 million entity makes? Yes, probably. But everybody in that entity also gets paid <laughs> oh, a salary, yes. right? You're, you're right. <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> Yeah, no, this is the part this is the part that I have a problem with. Again, it's like, you know, obviously there's money. There's there's a lot of money. Um, and you know, and I think there's a lot of money because not everybody's equally getting compensated or in some cases compensated at all. But it goes to show how sizable yes, this business is. And how much is. money's flowing through the coffers of these universities. Yeah. And and it's so huge. any huge. any statements that come out saying money's tight. We can't afford the whole model gets broken if we pay people things. Th- those are that's just smoke or, or, signals. Or to, or to call college smoke sports and amateur sports. Smoke I mean, and mirrors. This is like, pro stuff. Smoke There's and big mirrors. money exactly. flowing through yeah. the doors, but they're yeah. not figuring out how to fairly compensate all the moving parts and all the parties. Yeah. So we just wanted to talk about these two. Big money. That's not new, but it definitely been in the news the last two weeks. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, we're going to take a little break. Uh, When we come back, we're going to be visiting with our guest, Jesse Washington. He's a journalist and an author. He presently writes for ESPN's Undefeated. And we invited him to our show also because he co-authored, as uh, Mike said at the top of the hour, uh, John Thompson's autobiography, I Came as a Shadow. It's an honor for us to have Jesse and, and, and for me also to have had a chance to speak with him. Also, our conversation takes us to one of the stories that Jesse describes in the book, and I reveal a little bit about that. So stay tuned. When we come back, we'll have our conversation with Jesse Washington. This podcasting gig is a fun time for us, and we really appreciate both our loyal listeners and anybody that's new this week and just checking us out. One way you could help us out this year is to help us reach our goal of gaining more listeners. So if you like our work and our takes, it'd be great if you told a friend or two about our show. Maybe you could tell that old buddy that still thinks he's going to fit into his high school jersey. Or your barber that you see more than your family and friends. Or your friend that thinks college athletes should stay broke because that's how it's always been. Definitely tell that guy because we think we can convince him otherwise. And make sure you've subscribed so that you too can get your weekly Pot on Point fix. We appreciate all of you. Keep on listening, send us some feedback, and stay on point, my friends. Jesse, good morning. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Where do we find you today? Where are you? Uh, I'm in an undisclosed location somewhere east of the Mississippi, <laughs> otherwise known as the Pittsburgh suburbs. Yeah. <laughs> now he's disclosed. That, that, I think maybe Mark Cuban is the only one that would call that place not undisclosed, right? <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> for others, it might be. Indeed. So, uh, Jesse, by way of introduction, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, sort of what you do. You and I obviously got in touch because of your book that you co-wrote with my former coach, John Thompson. But aside from that, tell us, you know, what it is that, you know, Jesse does on a regular basis. Well, I'm a father and a husband and a journalist for ESPN's The Undefeated. So I write stories, we film videos, make documentaries, those type of things. And I have a particular focus in my career on race. So it's always been an interest of mine to write about the experience of Black athletes and Black Americans. And The Undefeated is a platform exploring the intersections of race, sports, and culture. So 
all of this sort of came together and my interest in this and my career was fortunate enough to become a footnote to coach John Thompson's. Well, it's a big footnote, Jesse. Let me, let me tell you that. <laughs> so that's a uh, remarkable book and also, you know, great feat, I think, for anybody to be a part of it. So congratulations. How, how is the book doing, by the way? Are, are there lists that you can, you know, share with us? Anything in terms of kind of where, where it's at now? Let's see. It's hard for me to tell. And I sort of try to divorce myself from the results. It's sort of like as a player, if you prepare as yeah. hard as you can, if you do everything you're supposed to do, get your rest, eat right, then you can live with the <laughs> yeah. results of the game. And so I try to live with the results in terms of sales. That said, coach definitely liked to make money and cared about sales. And so <laughs> I think it is selling briskly. It's been reviewed favorably twice in the New York Times. Great. Okay. Also in the Washington Post and NPR and a ton of other very kind media outlets. And it's, you can find it in any of your local bookstores, any of, in, of your internet outlets, things like that. Yeah, yeah. Any specific feedback that has you know, been meaningful to you that, that you'd like to share with us? Yes. One of the main goals that I had going into this was to make sure the book sounded like Coach. And Vlad, you know from being around him, his, his delivery and his speech and his wisdom was so distinctive and so unique. And a lot of sports autobiographies that I've read don't sound like the person. I think sometimes yeah. the writer is more interested in doing their own thing than trying to capture the voice of the subject. So that was really one of my big goals. And one of the biggest pieces of feedback that we've consistently received is, it feels like Coach is talking to me. This sounds like him. That was something that Coach said early on because when he showed early drafts of the book to people who knew him, they're like, yeah, that's you, Coach. And then he started to have a little <laughs> yeah. more confidence in me. So that's the most important thing to me that number one, it sounds like coach. And number two, I think people are really taking the lessons that he has in there because it's not really a book about how to play basketball or how to set up certain plays or defenses. It's a book about life and people are really getting some of those life lessons. So those are the yeah. types of feedback that are most valuable to me. Yeah. And I would add to that, you know, Jesse, and you probably know, know this just as well as anybody, but it's also a historical narrative. I think his story is really a story of, you know, America in the sort of 60s and 70s and 80s. His angle is through sports and kind of his experience through that. But, but I think a lot of that he lived through in Washington, D.C. and kind of the Northeast during that mid-century is, uh, you know, also a record, I would argue, of, of, of where, where the country was. So that was, that, was, that was a very important aspect of the book that to me was super meaningful. But, but I totally get you on kind of you know, his voice, I don't know if it's PTSD or something, but I could definitely hear those words thundering in my, in my head as I was reading it, especially some of the more juicy words, uh, which I've heard many times. <laughs> That's good. You know, it's funny about the profanity. He spoke very freely with me. And as you know, he really enjoyed profanity and used it masterfully. And as we're going through writing the book on several occasions, he said, Jesse, there's too much profanity in here. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, coach, what do you want me to do? Like, and eventually he figured out the right balance that he wanted to be true to who he was, but he was also cognizant of the broad audience that it would speak to and things like that. So I think we got the right balance in there. I will say this sure. for everybody who reads the book, there's a lot less profanity in the book than coach used in real life. <laughs> <laughs> I can attest to that. <laughs> I can attest to that for sure. Well, uh, Jesse, I, I wanted this conversation to be a little bit different. 
as you and I talked about this, uh, you know, a couple of days ago, you know, I, I know coach intimately, I was part of his program four years. I feel like I lived the book in, you know, many ways. I don't think I want to center my questions around, you know, what it's, well, what was it like to work with him? You know, that kind of stuff. I'd like to focus on, on sort of a, a smaller subset of discussions and, you know, specifically into, into some of his thinking around college athletes getting, getting paid and that kind of stuff. Before we get into that, I would like to ask you just, you know, as a, as a writer, as a journalist, what was it like, you know, writing a sports book in, in this day and age? And I ask that because, you know, we're in a time of social media, of, you know, overwhelming kind of exposure to all kinds of news and, and everything. And, you know, here you are, you know, producing something that's one in many ways, very old school, and it's very static, right? Tell us about that experience and how you looked at it. It is a challenge today because people's attention spans are so short. People read less, I, I think, unfortunately, than they have in the past. But I still do have a love of reading. And I think that the book is the best way for coach to deliver his message in book yeah. form. Because it's not simple. You have to get the whole story, the whole context of his life. And like you said, of the history that surrounds his life to understand the role that he occupies and why he did the things he did. So this was absolutely the best format to tell it in. You know, and you try to just block out all of the doubts that you have about social media and attention spans yeah. and just do your job, you know, and do it for the people who are going to appreciate it. And so we've been fortunate that people have appreciated it. I found it really sort of a respite from the constant barrage of tweets and notifications and texts and all that sure. and emails to be able to sit down and focus on, you know, something from beginning to end, something that's more deliberative. And I just thought it really went well with who Coach was and what he had to say. Yeah. Did you find that the publisher did try to tailor like some of the messaging around kind of more contemporary, you know, media to get some younger audiences more interested? You know, tell us about that experience also. You know, I'm not all that experienced in the book publishing business. I did write a novel that was published before, although it's funny because one time coach said, yeah, we have to make sure that Jesse gets his attention with this because this is his first book. And the agent said, <laughs> it's not his first book. He wrote a book before. And coach said, yeah, but you know, only his mom and his wife read that book, <laughs> which wasn't that far off, you know, but uh I'm not really sure how they normally do it with social media and stuff like that, but I think it's sort yeah. of caught on with social media. And there's this thing, apparently, a lot of people will take a picture, like Twitter is my primary, my favorite social media platform. I'm a word guy. So I'll do some Instagram, I'll do some Facebook, you know, but Twitter is really where the action is for me. And a lot of people will take a picture of the book and tweet it, like I got my copy, or they'll take a picture of the page and quote something from it. So to me, I think yeah. people are translating this book and their experience with the book into a social media format. And I find it really engaging. I think it's good for the book. I think it's good for the work. I think it's good for Coach's message because yeah. probably several dozen people have just chosen a passage from the book or a quote and just tweeted that out and then say, Coach John Thompson, right. you know, right. hey, that's, yeah. that's getting the message out. So I think that's a cool yeah. thing. Interesting. So yeah, that, that's that's interesting you say that. When when I was reading it, I was highlighting. I I'm an iBook reader, so I have everything on my iPad, and I was highlighting and copying and sending Mike texts 
and you know messages from from the book, which made it actually a lot easier. It doesn't let you you know copy a lot, but but enough where you kind of you know have a gist of a sentence or something, right? Which I thought was interesting. That was an interesting experience because I'm not just you know repeating what I read. I can actually show the actual you know quotes and words and that kind of thing. So in that case, I think technology has been great. So anyway, great. Well, I want to turn over to this conversation that I actually found interesting uh, in in the book, and and it's it's mentioned a couple of times, but. Coach Thompson's sort of perspective on uh, players getting paid and earning money and have the ability to, you know, com- be compensated, right, has evolved. And and at the end of the book, he very clearly states where his position on that is, and it is in favor of athletes getting getting paid. Tell us, you know, how did you approach that conversation with him, and you know, w- were you surprised by his perspective on this? Yes, that's a great question. So let's start with just to underline and underscore and asterisk the point. Coach John Thompson said that college athletes should share some of the money they generate. I'm unaware of any other major college coach who has said that. And he has a history of being ahead of his time and so many things with college athletics. I think this is probably his final example of being ahead of the curve and seeing things that other people are slow to realize. So he came to that conclusion over the course of us working on the book. And I would ask him periodically from the time we started working on it, you know, just as a conversation topic, I was curious, what do you think? And he never said no, but he never said yes. He would say, well, you know, I have a lot of questions about how it would work and I don't understand this and I don't understand that. I haven't heard anybody explain how do I get to pay the stars more? If I'm hiring you, do I get to fire you? Like he had a lot of, he was going through his process. As you probably know, Vlad, he's a very methodical thinker and thinks about and wants to think around the corners that are there that other people won't consider ahead of time. So he was thinking about it and thinking about it. And we would talk about it periodically. And then he saw that movie, The Scheme, which was the documentary on HBO where the young kid who was trying to get into the agent game was talking about how he was paying all these players. And the scheme also detailed very graphically the FBI wiretaps that caught a number of prominent coaches talking about paying players, talking very overtly about paying players. Also in the scheme, it really emphasized that a lot of the NCAA enforcement, when it comes down to it, it's hard for African-Americans to get head coaching jobs in, in NCAA basketball. They're usually stuck at the assistant level. And then when something goes wrong in the program, they're the ones who take the fall. So the FBI did this big investigation and they did get Patino. But then after that, a bunch of uh, black coaches went to jail like or went to trial or were under threat of jail. And and one of them actually went to jail, at least one of them. I think similar in Arizona, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. And, you know, coach didn't want to talk about, he, you know. As we were working through it, it wasn't Coach's style to call out the different schools, but we can say that the schools in the, that were featured in the documentary prominently were the University of Arizona and Louisiana State. And these schools have been caught dead to rights on FBI wiretaps talking about paying players, and they're still playing. And Coach also right. was the way he thought about things. So I'm, I'm sort of, I know this is a long way to get to this, to the answer your question, but that's what Coach took was a long time to get to this. And he often thought about things in unconventional ways. When he was the first black coach to win an NCAA championship and everybody said, hooray, how does it feel to be the first black coach? And he said, I'm insulted by that question. You right. know, 
which was another because that implies that no one else could win it before me when they were denied the opportunity. So the way he looked at this situation with the NCAA was you got all these schools that are paying players and the NCAA is unwilling to expediently enforce its own rules. So therefore, you're placing all the other coaches at a huge disadvantage who don't pay for players. You're encouraging them to cheat. He said, you're encouraging kids to take money. It's almost like entrapment. So therefore, yeah. we should, it's too far gone. The NCAA has proven that they can't and or won't do anything. So we should pay the, the kids. Yeah, and that's a very good point because he, he ends the book by you know talking about his son, uh, John Thompson III, coaching. And he ends the book with, with this, or you guys end, end the book rather, with this notion and what was interesting there, and I hadn't really thought about this, but you know, he basically said, if I were starting out today, I would cheat too, because there's no way for me to beat these other schools who are cheating. Like I'm, I'm the only honest sort of guy out here. And he basically used that as a, as a way to describe what, what happened to his son, I, I suspect, right? Basically, he couldn't be on par with some of these other schools that were doing whatever they wanted to do effectively. I thought that was an amazing statement that he made. If I was coaching now, I would pay for players too. I would cheat because he said, otherwise I would get beat by the cheaters and get fired. Now, I still wonder whether he really meant that to be factually true or whether he was using that as a rhetorical device to antagonize and push for the change that he wanted. And yeah. if I asked him, he would probably say, well, I'm not going to tell you that <laughs> or something like <laughs> he was that smart. But the point, right, you're right, right. It did. I think that his belief about other schools paying for players was definitely tied to his emotions about his son losing his job because there was a player who JT3 was recruiting at Georgetown who yeah. then signed with one of the schools and was caught and, and he was one of the kids who was getting paid. So it's like, all right, how you expect Georgetown to win if the other schools are paying for the kids that they can't recruit and then you fire them because they can't beat the schools that cheat? Like this was Coach's thought process. Um, yeah. The other thing that was really remarkable in the book where he said is that toward the end of his son's tenure, they did a study of all the winning percentages. And JT3 yep. had, I think it was like the, um, the 20-something best winning percentage in college basketball. But of that number, about 13 or 14 of the other coaches had come under some sort of sanctions for cheating. Yes. <laughs> that was a very uh, interesting number. I, when, when I saw that, I said, that's amazing. Yeah. He was like 27th or something. And the other half were, were under investigation or were being prosecuted or something yeah. like, like that. And, and, it would, and it just illustrated right. sort of where this has come. So this is what all went into his, you know, and I know it's a lot and it was a sort of a winding road to get to the answer, but this is all of the factors that went into the writing of the book and him coming to the conclusion to make yeah. the statement that he did. And he knew that it would be a big deal for him to say that. He knew that it could help spur change the same way he helped spur change with Proposition 42. And so he used it very judiciously. It was, you know, me, I'm the journalist, right? So as soon as he said yeah. it, I'm thinking, Newsflash, newsflash. I was like, coach, you should put that out right now. Like you should do a column or something. Any newspaper would print it. And then he was like, ah, let's save it for when the book comes out. Because <laughs> yeah, he also yeah. was a master marketer. Yeah, good question. Thank you for asking. You know, as an observer to what you both get to have gotten to do and be so close to coach, I just want to make an observation, then ask you a question. First off, I'm most like our listeners. 
that we're just going to be on the outside kind of picking up all the different perspectives that the two of you uh, were able to gleam. So that, that's just a really cool seat to be in. But the question I have from this is that it really seems like, and I mean this is the greatest compliment, Coach Thompson's style was kind of like a platform in that. Like we're, we're tech guys, we're innovation guys. And like some of the best innovations out there have been platforms to let things do, you know, to shine and, and, and to be the best version of themselves. And it feels like here, Coach not only maybe coached you some, but he set up a platform for, for you here, Jesse, to, for your book to put out some of his message. And for you, Vlad, to, to be a platform for you to get your degree at Georgetown and go on in your life. And that comes to mind for me. Do, do you feel kind of that sense that Coach kind of was emblematic of lifting all these different things around him and maybe not everybody knew it even at the time? A hundred percent. That was one of his major goals. And he felt that Georgetown was his pri- the primary platform for his folks to take advantage of. But he, you know, he was an educator and educators want to help people fulfill their dreams to realize their potential. So he was the physical embodiment of a platform. His message, definitely his book, he intends it to be a platform for people to use. And he knew that he was creating a platform for me in my career as well. Yeah, That was what that whole comment was about. We have to make sure that Jesse gets his share, you know? Yeah. Um, and so yeah, yeah. he was someone who, it's funny because this is not a word that anybody would have applied to him in his career, but he was an extraordinarily kind person. At the heart of it, he really wanted to help other people. And he was kind in his assessments of others. In the book, he really does not criticize people a lot. And so I think that that kindness gets to the root of his intent to create these platforms to lift people up. Yeah, yeah. Interesting thing that you just sort of mentioned about how this is all evolving. So as a journalist, Jesse, this is a fast-paced environment in terms of how NIL is coming into play, the name, image, and likeness. I feel I went to Northwestern for uh, my you know, graduate school, and this was a time when the football team at that point was, was considering you know, unionizing, that that kind of went away. But then since then, we've had a few states pass you know, laws that are coming to effect, essentially. In Florida, you know, July 1st, the name, image, and likeness law is coming into effect. As a journalist, how, how are you following this evolution? And what, what, what are you, you know, following, doing, trying to sort of focus and, you know, make, make sure that this is part of this sort of everyday narrative too? I'm paying very close attention to it because I think we're really at a watershed moment in college sports in a number of ways. If I had to give a big macro description of it, it's that really the power and the control is shifting from the organization of the NCAA more toward the student athlete. And student athlete is probably an outdated term. Certainly at the top level, it is. So I'm paying a lot of attention to it. I've written a number of columns just sort of trying to point out the hypocrisies of the current system and to advocate for players, try to show why it makes sense for them to be to share in some of the money that they generate. And I'm intensely interested in the upcoming NCAA, I'm sorry, Supreme Court decision, although I'm not hopeful that they'll do the right thing. And so I just think it's important. I'm primarily a reporter, and that's really the essence of who I am. And I do you know, give opinions from time to time, but everything I do is really based on reporting and facts and an accurate description of what's going on. And so Really, I'm trying to gather as much information as I can also to make sure I understand the NCAA fully. And they don't make it easy. 
No, <laughs> it's it's a closed it's system. Byzantine. <laughs> it's like yes. I mean, I've cracked some secret societies that were easier to get to than the NCAA. <laughs> You might be able to go see the Pope easier I'm than say, you know. <laughs> the, 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 I'm saying it's crazy. The they the might NCAA. take away eligibility retroactively from you. You get <laughs> yeah. too close. Yeah, you know. I have children who are involved in NCAA athletics, or who will soon be, and who will soon be. And so, you know, I'm really interested in it. Not so they can, not so my kids can make money, because that's not the point. And and I, I personally feel like we're ahead of the game in terms of receiving free education. As in terms of our family, but I think it's a really important issue for yeah. youth sports and for the future of a lot of young people. And that's my primary concern. And so, you know, uh, I'm really trying to keep tabs on it and gather as much information as I can and then help to shine light on the things that will point us all in the right direction. Yeah. Are there any trends that you're observing that are kind of bubbling up that, that you think will be interesting here in the, in the next you know, year or so? Yes. I think that there's going to be more lawsuits and student athletes deciding to do things out ahead of what's allowed and then challenging the NCAA to stop them. I really see that, you know, and this, this past 2020 that we just went through, because of all the racial justice protests, that put a lot of pressure and emboldened a lot of athletes at the college level to really exercise and realize their influence to a greater extent. You've never seen so many football players calling out what they what was real misbehavior or mistreatment by their coaches and yeah. and affecting change. There was a running back down at the University of Mississippi who said I'm not playing, I'm not playing until you make certain changes with as far as these racist type of uh, imagery or songs that were associated with the program. The some football players down at the University of Texas said, we're not going to participate in any recruiting activities until you rename certain sections of the complex from these you know, racist associated names. And these are major programs that previously had all the power. And so I think that that's the trend that I see as the most significant, that the athletes are really standing up for themselves and starting to step out in terms of justice and faith that we're doing the right thing and challenge, not saying we're going to challenge the rule and then wait to see if you let us go around the rule, but we're going to do what we think is right and then figure out the rest later. I think that's a good development. Yeah, interesting. You know, one of the things that Mike and I have also observed uh, a couple of months ago, we, we, we spoke to an attorney who is a former agent and he's one of the leading kind of folks in the country looking at, at, at you know, at um, NIL. And, you know, one of the things that we brought up with him is like, well, the clock doesn't start counting the day that student walks onto campus, right? Mm -hmm. After NIL commences, if, if you will, you could have high school kids that already have deals coming into your program, right? That already are like a Nike athlete or a, or a whatever athlete. And it's going to create an interesting dynamic because there's nothing stopping all of these companies engaging with them even prior to them entering a university. That's a great point. And the, you absolutely will have that. And I think down to a really uh, microeconomic level, you know, you got all kinds of hoopers. Uh, you know, these kids in the social media now, man, they're very savvy. You know, I think I might have, I have a son who's in college. I might have to hire him to run my Instagram account, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so 
there's kids on the high school level. You telling me that the local pizza parlor won't hit them up to to you know to be sponsored on their Instagram? I mean, really, that's name or game. car dealership or right. anything exactly. Right. Like yeah. absolutely on a local level, these kids are big enough to move the needle for marketing with that. You know, yeah. so there's that part of it. But let's not forget why why we're here today talking about Coach John Thompson and what he would say is how does this impact the educational aspect? Mm-hmm. You know, how yeah. is this going to is it going to hinder these kids from an education? Is it going to help them? He says in his book, money never stopped anybody from getting education. As a matter of fact, it makes it a lot easier. So, yeah. uh, you know, you could see, I think that there's, that's a whole nother discussion about how that's going to impact that aspect of it. But I, I think it's important to notice. Overall, I think you're going to have the top layer of the best elite athletes sort of get peeled off from the, the, the college athletic experience that we know in terms of basketball right now not football, but basketball. And so then I think you're going to have go back to the days of basketball players, NCAA basketball players staying in school longer, more of them getting degrees. Nowadays, they have to go there and put their time in so they can go to the league, but they're going to have so many other options. They're going to have money. And so I do think that we're going to have more of a student athlete experience in the NCAA basketball, which is great. Yeah, it's going to be super interesting. Mike and I have discuss this and we have posited that we might see the NCAA splinter. Uh, certainly the football schools are leaning in that direction. Um, we might see uh, the NBA G League become more prominent. I think, you know, LaMelo Ball is one example of sort of a very unconventional kind of path to the NBA. And I can see other kids following that path in the in the future, right? Certainly somebody like, you know, LeBron James, the next LeBron James, again, probably won't go to college just like he didn't, right? So that'll be, that'll be interesting. Um, to, like you said, kind of, you know, bring this back to Coach Thompson. So you're a journalist, you know, when, when you are considering a story, you're always, you know, asked to go and interview more people and get a few sort of perspectives and, you know, different, different quotes. Were you in any way feeling like the perspective that Coach Thompson was giving you was, you know, just his? And did it ever, not necessarily bother you, but were you sort of wondering what what the other angle might be on the on the same story? It was a passing thought sometimes, but you know, I so quickly sort of became invested in his story, and I identified with him. Like, how could I not? Yeah. You know, um, and he was very upfront about the fact that this is my view, and you know, he says at the end of the introduction here. He's talking about all the things that happened. And he said, here's what happened with all those things. I might be wrong sometimes, but this is how I feel. You yeah. know, that's on page five. So he's telling you, yeah, there's a lot of other people out there. He mentioned several times, a lot of your teammates, he said, they don't like me. They hope that they never see me again. And probably yeah. for good reason. <laughs> right. He said, I made some mistakes right. with some of those guys. You know, So yeah. I definitely knew there's a lot of guys out there who have critiques of Coach Thompson. I knew there were people out there, you know, you might have this story, that story. And I read the books. There was a biography that was done, I think about 1990 or so, called Big yeah, Man the on Campus. Big Man on Campus. Yeah, you know, I, yeah. I read that. Parts of it made me very angry because he was well off base. And, and it made me angry before I started working with Coach Thompson. But I wasn't, I didn't really feel compelled or torn in any way because Coach Thompson was transparent about what he was doing. Yeah. And I believed in him and his mission. And I believed that after however many millions of words were written and said about him over the years, he deserved his chance to define himself on his own terms, finally. So I was really comfortable sort of 
helping him do that. Yeah, yeah. Are there any stories that didn't make it into the book that you wish that it that they did? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can share one or two. <laughs> I don't wish that they did because I, I wish my biggest wish was for Coach to have the book that he wanted. But there were a lot yeah. of really funny times that we had and laughs and poignant moments. Most of the things that didn't get in there that myself, to re reference your previous question as a journalist, I'm all about naming names and stuff, but Coach protected a lot of people. Like there's a lot right. of, you had a lot of goofball teammates that he could have really thrown under the bus, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> in the famous story about him putting beer in the water bottles in practice, which we'll get to later, he didn't name the kids who were drinking the beer. Yes. That's so typical of, of <laughs> I can name them. Yeah, and you will. Uh, so, <laughs> that was so typical of him. But you know, here's an example. Yeah. And um, this was, you know, here's an example. Coach Thompson would withhold information from me, but he knew, you know, this is sort of the way that he was coaching me. He knew that if he didn't tell me something, I would want to go find out on my own. So he was talking about his beloved boys club number two and how other cities yeah. would bring teams yeah. down there and uh, they would bring teams from other cities. And sometimes it'd be hustlers and drug dealers who would put a team together and bring them down. He said, one day I'm in boys yeah. club number two and the team walks in from New York and there's one of the guys from the big East, a star player from the big East is on the team that this hustler had brought down. He said, man, that kid was so scared to see me and so on and so forth. And he's laughing. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, coach, that's crazy. Who is it? He looked at me and said, you'll never know. And then, he, and he said it with a smile. He knew I was going to keep looking. So anyway, I'm, yeah. I'm sort of, you know, I, I put that in my back pocket. And then one day his son, Ronnie, was down in the office with us. And I think I mentioned it. I threw it out there like, yeah, about that time when the, you know, Ronnie, you were there that time, right? When the team came and he said, and then Ronnie sort of gave me a hint. And then I guessed the kid's name and I could tell by everybody's expression that I had the name right. <laughs> that you had it. You got it. <laughs> and then, and then coach, uh, and, and so that didn't go in the book. It was a star player. I will say that. Um, yeah, those yeah, are the yeah. type, but coach wanted to protect him. Coach didn't want it because sure. it was a, you know, it was a violation. Is the NCAA sure. going to go back yeah. retroactively? So those are the kind of things that, you know, I don't wish they were in there, but I, I enjoyed hearing them. Like to me, that yeah. was the, that was my extra pay for doing the book to get to hear yeah. all these other things. And his, you know, he had some choice words to say about some people, but it would come like when the tape recorder was off and we were just chopping it up, you know, talking about stuff. And I knew it didn't take me long to figure out, okay, now he's talking for the book and now he's just talking to me, right. put me up on game. There were some members of the 88 Olympic team he was disappointed in. Yes. That's as far yes. as I'll and go. I <laughs> and I think I know who you're talking about too. <laughs> There's one particular player there that uh, he just didn't get right. along but with But in him. the book, he said... He didn't even give a hint in the book of right. any dissatisfaction with any of those players. That's right. That's very true. Yeah. And I've heard those anecdotes also. So I, I wanted to kind of make this, you know, end this. Um, I'm, I'm calling a timeout. I'm, I'm throwing a flag. We're calling a timeout. I'm running up the sideline trying to get a timeout. We can't pass on this beer story. We got hydration here, folks. What's, what's yeah. this beer in the water bottles? We're, we're not wrapping okay, this up. Okay, so let me, set, let me set, it up. In the water let me set it up. Okay, so here it is. Is this your question? So I'm, I'm going to turn the microphones here for you, Jesse, and I'm going to let you be the journalist and ask the question. Oh, so you were there with the water bottles and the beer. Okay, this is good. Here is my question. There was a famous incident where some members of the team were drinking too much and did not heed coaches' repeated admonishments to calm the F down. <laughs> and so 
And so <laughs> coach said he asked coach. It was less of his repeated admonishments as more than he wanted to let them know that he, he knows. knows that he was in their stuff. Right. <laughs> every day, every minute. Right. He knew exactly where they were and what they were doing. Right, which he did. And separately, Dikembe told me one time he snuck out to go to a club in D.C. And when he got there, the doorman said, Coach, coach told me and told you to t- told me to tell the Kembe get the f back to campus. <laughs> he was like, "How did he know? I wasn't even there yet." But anyway, back to the beer. Yeah. So he knew, but apparently the fact that coach knew what they were doing did not deter them. So one day in practice, he ran them and he ran you guys, you know, a nice bit, and then said, "Okay, it's time for a water break." And everybody had a water bottle with their number on it because that's how it goes on a basketball team. And in the beer drinkers that he wanted the message to, instead of water or Gatorade in their bottles, it was beer. He said he had asked Coach Spriggs, hey, Ed, what's the best beer that's out there? And he said, Heineken. He said, go bring me back some Heineken. (laughs) And he put Heineken in the water bottles. And then he blew the whistle and said, okay, water break. And everybody's gassed and thirsty. And then... And then, and then he just sat there and watched the beer drinkers. So, yeah. So take it away. Can I add my color? So can I add my color to this? Yes. So you, you never really knew how practice was going to go. One day it could have been just a practice where you're sitting down for three hours watching film. And the other day he's running you crazy. Right. And you, and, and you literally never knew. And this one practice started and, you know, we're all warming up. He comes down from the office and, you know, and he says, line up. And line up means you're going to run sprints. And in our heads, you know, you're just like, oh, my God, what happened? Who, who did it? <laughs> you know, you're looking around like, are you kidding me? He probably ran us for about 10 minutes and, you know, suicides, right? Yep. Or that's right. And we're running. We're out of our breath. We sit down and everybody, he passes out the, or the you know, managers pa- pass out the water bottles. And he says to us, I can still remember this, Jesse, thanks for another PTSD moment here. <laughs> he says, finish up. You got to drink everything in those water bottles. If you don't drink up the water bottles, we're running for another hour. <laughs> and we're like, what? <laughs> so you, you know, these are the, the, you know, the Gatorade bottles. They're probably about a, you know, quarter of a gallon. 25 right? ounces, and 32 you think, ounces. You think it's easy to drink quarter of a gallon. It is not easy to drink quarter of a gallon, especially when you're out of breath. <laughs> And I'm drinking this thing and I'm going like crazy. And I'm like, man, I'm going to drown with this thing. I can't do it anymore. And, and we're all, you know, he's kind of looking at us, looking at us. And he goes, did anybody not finish the drink? And I'm like, I'm not saying no. I'm going to lie this one through. If he calls me out, I'm saying I've, because I'm not going to run another hour. And then should I say the names or should I not say Bring the names? Out. I don't know if I say the you names. say the names. John Jocks and Kevin Millen. <laughs> <laughs> he said, did you guys drink your water? And they're like, no, coach. Why did you drink your water? Well, there's beer in it. What? There's beer in it. Eddie, did you hear that? There's beer in it. And that's how it evolved. That's great. And he just went off on us and every one of us, essentially. And, you know, this was his big teaching moments. Like, I know exactly what you're doing. And he goes, and I got you Heineken. I got you the good stuff, right? <laughs> and, he, and he didn't use he didn't use the word stuff, as you know. But it was it was one of those, you know, teaching moments where he wanted us all to know that he's got people everywhere. And, you know, you need to, you know, follow through and be an athlete and be serious about this. And that was a challenging year. That was, I think, my sophomore year. It was their freshman year. We we had some ups and downs. And, you know, those are the things that happened. That is tremendous. (laughs) That is tremendous. 
Yeah. So. And, you know, he concluded that he was famous for keeping reporters out of practice. And he said, yes. he concluded that story with me. And he said, yeah, so imagine if I got reporters in practice, you know, they think I'm crazy trying to get the kids drunk. And he said, the reporters thought that I was doing that to prevent them from doing their jobs. In reality, I was preserving my ability to do mine. Yeah, yeah. He was he was under a microscope there that, you know, very few people were. And I, I don't think he was given the benefit of the doubt many times for his decisions. And he had to, you know, he had to protect himself. And and you you know this, um, you know, Jesse, but some of the, you know, campus newspapers were not kind to him or to some of the players. And it, it was just a way to basically contain that within 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 the system. There 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 was one story where we were you know, we were doing fairly well at the end of the season. And, and he said this thing, you know, we have, we have three games to play in the, in the, you know, Big East tournament. We have three games to play in the NCAA. And then we're, we're in the, you know, you know, final four. So he was sort of, I think he was sort of like saying like three, three, one or something like, like that. And then the next game, somebody had a sign that had those words on the sign. And he just went off on us because he was like, who said this? Because obviously this was said inside our locker room, right? I was using this as a way to motivate you guys, and you guys are going out telling your friends, mm. you know, and and it, it it was indicative, right, of 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 how protective he he was of the of the program. So. He did not miss a thing. He really did. No, he did not miss a thing at all. He did not miss a thing at all. So anyway, well, Jesse, thank you so much. It's it's been an honor to have you and. Um, Walked down memory lane here. Um, it's been a super meaningful book to me also, as I said to you the other day. Uh, you know, I grew up in a different country. So for me, a lot of the narrative around, you know, his upbringing and just the way the country was and what D.C. was like in those days and how it evolved was, was very interesting. It also put a very fine context for me in terms of sort of how quickly the NCAA sports as a business has, you know, grown. And Mike and I were talking about this. It really started you know, in the, in the late 70s, when the Big East was, was formed and ESPN was, was formed the same year as the Big East, right, in 79, and it kind of took off. So these last 40 years effectively were, were the years that this business has become what it is. And it's become so big and so massive that here we are at a, at a point in time where it's probably, you know, due for a big change. Absolutely. And, you know, one of Coach's parting gifts to us is going to be the sort of Another kick in the butt to the NCAA to get them headed in the right direction. So thanks, Coach. Yeah, absolutely. Jesse, thank you. Stay well. Be in touch. And uh, we look forward to connecting with you again. I appreciate you guys. Thanks very much. Real honor, Jesse. Be well. All right. Uh, well, that was a great conversation. I, I really enjoyed that. And it was interesting going, so you know, cool. going back down memory lane there, Mike. And kind of hearing uh, about Coach, I actually went on Jesse's website a couple of days ago, and I and there's a video of him talking, and I haven't heard his voice in a while, but I it was like not like PTSD, but <laughs> you know when you recall that, oh yeah, I remember that voice very very well. So sure. it was it was it was really cool. So yeah, anyway. it's great. Well, just an honor to talk with with Jesse. Yeah, exactly. To have him on our podcast has been yeah, it's great. Been really great. So yeah, yeah it's great. Appreciate anyway, that. so Mike, I've got a come on man for us. This lay week. it on us. All right, lay so, it on us. You know, Any you pigeons? Know, are we talking pigeons? No pigeons. We're not talking pigeons. We okay. are talking. We are talking sea animals, sharks. All right. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so Greg Norman, the shark, 
right? There we go. Our, okay. our golfer, our golfer, Greg Norman, the shark. So Greg lives in uh, Florida and he yes. just listed a uh, house that he owns there. He put on the market for $60 million. <sighs> He's in a place called Jupiter Island, Florida, just north of Palm Beach. I've actually been there a few times. Me too. Nice place. And yeah, very nice place. The house is so big that it actually sits sits sort of vertically across the island. So both sides of the island are on his property. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Does that makes sense. Now that's that's all relative, obviously, right? Okay. But anyway, um, what I found was sort of interesting is that the house is actually seven houses. What? Okay. So there's uh the main house. Then there is a coach house. Then there's a pool house. Then there is then there is a carriage house. Then there is a boat house. Then there is a generator house. And did I say I did say pool house? Oh, I guess then a dog kennel. Oh, so of all of this, all of this is what you get when you buy this house. What do you think, Mike? I I Geez, come on. What's the price for this? I didn't know golf was so good to Mr. Norman. 60 Maybe million his... bucks. 60 million My bucks. Gosh. And, and it's a deal million. because he tried to sell it for 65 in 2008. Oh, good. No buyer. So, no buyer. Come on. So, come on. so, so now he's so got a deal for you. Now it's a deal. Now it's a deal. And you get six or seven houses out of it. Come on. There you go. Wow. He's been successful, I guess. Woo. I would say so. I would say so. Woo. So well, one, Vlad. Uh, that's our show. So thank you for joining us today. Hey, if you go to your podcast app now, there's a button there that says subscribe. Give it a hit. Subscribe to our show. Click it and forget it. And our next show will automatically get on your device next time. We'll love feedback. So tell us what you think. With your friends and family about us. Our contact information is in the show notes. The more we hear from you, the more we can be on point. Mike, good game. Excellent game. See you next week. 